Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, turn with me with your Bible this morning to the third epistle of John. John, the third epistle of John, we're going to look at verse number two. We've been looking at this verse now for several weeks, and uh, there's more in here that we want to uh, dig out from the Word of God, so to speak. So in in the third epistle of John, verse number two, John wrote, of course, we know that he opened this book by writing to Gaius, who was a friend of his, a companion in ministry. Uh, But we know that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and that it's, so it's God breathed. And Paul said that all scripture is, is, uh, that's given by inspiration of God like this is profitable for correction, instruction, uh, reproof, and so forth, that the man of God would be complete, furnished uh, for the work of the gospel. And so it, it applies to ministers, it applies to church people. So this scripture is not just written to one man, it's written to the body of Christ. Amen. And so in 3 John verse 2, he said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. We pointed out that three different kinds of prosperity are identified in this passage. First of all, spiritual prosperity. He said, uh, I pray that, that you prosper in these ways even as your soul prospers. In other words, as you prosper in the things of God and your relationship with God, that has to be first. That has to be the foundation for everything. But then he said, I pray that you may prosper and be in health just as your soul prospers. Well, how much would God want your soul to prosper? How much would God want you to prosper spiritually? How, how advanced, how, uh, how uh, deep and wonderful and, and full and abounding would God want your spiritual prosperity to be? He said, I pray that you will prosper in all things and be in health to the same degree. God wants us to have the best of everything he's provided, Amen. And so when, when we read the word uh, that you may prosper in all things, that word prosper as it was used in the New Testament is the same way the English word it, prosper is used today. Its most fundamental and basic meaning uh, is to prosper naturally, uh, financially to succeed in business enterprises. In other words, to, to be a prosperous person in the material sense. Now, we know that prosperity can apply in other realms, but again, the number one definition, you look up the word prosper, the number one definition is to be successful in uh, uh, financial affairs. That's the number one thing that you think when you think of the word prosperity or to prosper, and that's exactly the first meaning of the word in the New Testament, the Greek word that was translated prosper. So we know that God wants us to prosper financially. He wants us to be in health and he wants us to have both of those uh, components in our life to the same degree that we prosper spiritually. Amen. Praise the Lord. So uh, we've been looking at this and and, uh, we're several weeks into this. I ministered on this last Sunday night as well as Sunday morning. And so I wanna kinda hit some highlights of, uh, of some things we talked about Sunday night and then dig a little deeper in this. The first thing we said about prosperity and, and, and to get the full 
uh, weight or the full significance of everything that said this morning. It would have been good if you'd heard the services that went before. Most of you have. If if not, you can go online. You can listen to the message messages along this line and and kind of get caught up to speed. But uh, uh, on Sunday night last week, we pointed out that prosperity is progressive. Biblical prosperity is progressive. Turn with me to Genesis, the 26th chapter of Genesis, and we see this uh, principle of progressive prosperity. Genesis 26, verse number 13. Well, let's start in verse number 12 so we can get the context. Genesis 26, 12, and 13. Verse 12 says that Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold And the Lord blessed him. Notice the Lord blessed him. Verse 13 shows us the progression of prosperity. It says the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. I want to read that again. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Notice he didn't start out very prosperous. He started out beginning to prosper. No one starts out in biblical prosperity at the top. We start out beginning to prosper. And if we will continue in the word, we will continue to prosper. And if we'll continue to prosper, we will become very prosperous. I don't care where you see yourself right now in the financial uh, specter of life. I don't know where, how you see yourself on, uh, in terms of material blessing and so forth. If you will stick with the word of God, you will prosper, you will continue to prosper, and if you stay with it, the time will come when you'll look around and say, praise the Lord, I'm very prosperous. And God wants us all to be very prosperous. Notice it says that God blessed him and he began to prosper. God blessed him, and he continued prospering. God blessed him until he became very prosperous, and the very prosperous was just as much the blessing as the beginning prosperity was. Amen? God wants us to prosper, but prosperity is progressive. Now, what does that mean that it's progressive? Well, uh, prosperity begins as soon as a person sees from the Bible that God wants him to prosper. You might be, like we sometimes say, you know, at the bottom of the barrel, or like Brother Hagin used to say, you might be under the barrel, and the barrel's on top of you. You're not even in the barrel. You may look at yourself in that kind of a light financially. You might think, boy, I am so, I am so uh, low. You know, I'm so, I'm, I'm so needy. I have so much need in my life and I have uh, so many responsibilities that I can't meet. I don't know where to start financially. The number one step is you must see from the word of God that God wants you to prosper. That pros- that that uh, poverty or, or lack or uh, 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 having very little in life is not God's view of godliness. That's not piety. We've all seen the poster, you know, the picture. I like to, to, to pick on Miss Iris because she has one in her house and she likes it, you know. But you've all seen the picture, you know, at the department store or wherever. And, and uh, there's a, this, this old man, you know, he's sitting at a, at a very uh, uh, simple table. 
and he has a, a small piece of bread and, a, and one goblet, you know, one, one uh, glass of water and he's, and he's bowing and he's praying and, and the, the picture is so spartan. It's so, uh, uh, you know, needy looking. And there's this man, but, but it presents the idea of godliness, you know, just the godliness of, of having very little and being humble before God and, and, that's, and that's being uh, pious. It isn't. Now, you can be poor and be pious, but poverty isn't piety. You understand what I'm saying? There's nothing about having lack that uh, God enjoys or, or is pleased with or moves him. So people, sometimes tradition has taught, you know, that uh, to, to be really pure and upright before God, you can't be interested in anything in this world. You're not interested in, in having anything, just having a little bit because you want to stay humble before God. You have to see that God did not create man to live in lack. You look at the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a beautiful garden and every need was met. Anything of their wildest imagination, there was no sense of lack or struggle or effort or anything in the Garden of Eden. And God provided all of it. So, well, they didn't have a mansion to live in. They didn't need a mansion to live in. They had everything they needed and they had it abundantly. You know, if God plants a garden, it's going to be a good garden. You know, it's going to have everything in it. Isn't that right? And, uh, and so God created man to, to have plenty and to prosper. It wasn't until sin came into the world and the curse because of sin came upon this earth that man began to do without. Remember Adam and Eve when they sinned, uh, God drove them. The Bible says he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. And put an angel, you know, at the, at the east gate of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to protect the way uh, to the, to the uh, tree of life. And it says that, that he cursed the ground for their sake and said, from this day forward, the ground will be cursed. And instead of, of yielding plenty, instead of yielding abundantly, he said, you will scratch out a living from the dirt. It will, it will bear thorns and, and briars and, and weeds. And we all know that you can plant a garden today, that curse is still in the earth. And you have to work it, you have to weed it, you have to water it. I mean, you have to baby it and work on it. And you have a patch of weeds over here and you don't have to do anything. And they'll just take over. That's the curse that's in the earth. It didn't start that way. God intended man to live in plenty, not to live in lack. And so you have, to, you have to get your thinking straightened out. And so the very first step toward prosperity is to understand and to recognize that, hey, wait a minute, living with lack and having uh, financial pressure, not being able to uh, pay my bills, not being able to afford the things that, that are good in life, This is not the will of God. God wants me to have more. As soon as a person sees that, they are on their way to prosperity. The next step is then to begin to act on the word of God and begin to give of what you have. And we'll go into some scriptures in a few minutes that that teach that. But giving is 
is the first step of faith that someone takes in prosperity. It's not enough to believe that God wants you to prosper. If you really believe that, then you will act on what he said about prosperity, and that is give and it shall be given unto you. That's a law of prosperity. And as soon as a person acts that first time, as soon as a person acts that very first time in faith and gives, at that point, they begin to prosper. At that point, God sees you as prosperous. Now, nothing about your circumstances might look prosperous. People might think, not think you're prosperous. Your checkbook might not look prosperous. Your, the automobile you drive might not look prosperous. The clothes that you wear might not look as prosperous as you, as you would like to look. But as soon as you act in faith and give that first offering to God, God, when you do it in faith, God will, will honor that and you will begin to prosper, prosper. And from that point on, as far as God's concerned, you're prosperous. God sees you prosperous at that point. And God wants to continue to prosper you. It says that Isaac began to prosper. He continued prospering until he became very prosperous. And that is the will of God. Amen. Uh, now we pointed this out that reaping financially is proportional to sowing. Reaping financially is proportional to sowing. Go over with me to 2 Corinthians 9 again. 2 Corinthians 9. We're gonna look at some verses here in chapter nine and also in chapter eight. But in verse chapter nine, verse number six, he's talking about giving to God. And he said in verse six, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, you can see here that reaping is proportional to sowing. Sow a little, reap a little. Sow a lot, reap a lot. Well, how much is little and how much is lot? a, a lot? Well, Paul said it's according to what a man has, not, what a, not, not according to what he does not have. What is little or a lot for one person won't be the same as it will for another person. Isn't that right? God sees what you have and he wants you to step out in faith and begin to sow what you have, understanding that whoever sows a little will reap a little, whoever sows a lot will reap a lot. Well, if you want to reap a lot, you can't sow a little. Isn't that right? If you want to, and I don't know very many people who only want to reap a little. You know, unless you're bound by that tradition that says, well, you know, I don't want anything. And I, I just need, you know, just a little box to live in and just, a, just one piece of bread and a little glass of water and I'm okay. And see, Sister Iris is laughing. She doesn't believe that. She just likes the picture, the, the painting or the, or the poster, whatever it is. Uh, but most people don't want a little. They want more. Well, if you want more, you have to sow more. That's how you get more. You now, you can have a little more or you can have a lot more. The difference between having a little more and a lot more is giving more rather than giving little. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Amen. Now, uh, we know this, that, our, that, that 
we have a covenant under the new covenant. We're living today in the new covenant. We're not living under the old covenant. We're living under the new covenant. Now, the new covenant has certain provisions. The new covenant includes the provision of eternal life, new birth. The new covenant includes being indwelt by the Spirit. That's part of our covenant right. Being filled with the Spirit. Walking in health. Walking in victory. And also walking in prosperity. That's part of the new covenant. We have a covenant right to prosperity. Now, how did we find that out? If you go back over to Isaiah, go with me, if you would, to Isaiah 53. Now, I'm going over some scriptures we've gone over before because usually there are people here that haven't heard. So in Isaiah 53, which is the great uh, chapter in the Old Testament of the sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, speaking of the Lord, In verse number four, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, in verse number five, the latter part of that verse, it says, or towards the latter part of that verse, it says, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. The Amplified Bible reads this way. The punishment needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. The punishment, the, the chastisement, the disciplining that was necessary for us to obtain peace was upon him. The word peace is the word shalom. Everybody knows that. The uh, Jews, you know, Jewish people use that word shalom as a greeting. And, And generally, it's the word peace. But if you go back and look at the word shalom in the Old Testament, and if you go back today and talk to people who uh, are from the Jewish culture, they will tell you that the word shalom to them means more than simply peace. It's a much larger word. It means peace. It means well-being. It means uh, fullness. And it includes the idea of prosperity. And that word, that Hebrew word shalom, it's translated peace in the Old Testament also carried the idea of prosperity, financial, material prosperity. That's part of well-being. In fact, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, sort of a, a stereotype, you know, of Jewish people. Jews do not believe in poverty. Isn't that right? I mean, everybody knows that. Jewish people do not believe that, that it's a, a, a sign of godliness or of piety to be poor. They believe in prosperity. The reason they do is because of the culture that came out of the Old Testament. The culture of the Old Testament was that the blessing of the Lord, it makes one rich. Amen. And so when it says here that Jesus, uh, that the, the chastisement or the punishment necessary to obtain peace, that would include prosperity, our peace, our prosperity was upon him. The punishment that Jesus took on the cross was the, was the punishment for sin and all sin and all of its consequences. 
You know, there were consequences of sin. As soon as Adam sinned, well, before that, God told Adam and Eve, now do not eat of this fruit because the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, they, they did eat, and yet Adam lived 935 years. Well, that had to have been talking about spiritual death. And that's exactly what happens. Spiritual death is what happens when a person sins. They are separated from God. And they have to be born again. Well, spiritual death happened as soon as Adam and Eve ate that fruit. But it took 900 years for physical death to catch up with them. God didn't plan or create the human body to die. The human body was not designed to die. The human body was designed to replenish itself, to renew itself, and to live forever. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they'd still be here. But the entrance of sin brought death and eventually spiritual death and eventually uh, physical death. And then on the heels of that came sickness. And like we say sometimes, sickness is a manifestation of death. You can call it death on the installment plan. It's death by degree. Isn't that right? And so you see no sickness in the Garden of Eden until sin. So when man sinned, one of the consequences, they were cut off from God's presence. They, they, they became sinners. They died spiritually. They, physical death began to work in their life. Sickness eventually showed up in their life. Poverty showed up immediately. We've already talked about the fact that God drove them from the garden and said, now the ground is cursed because of, of, of what you've done. So sin brought about the consequence of poverty. Poverty was not God's original plan. It came as a consequence, a direct consequence of sin. Well, it says here that Jesus bore our sins and he bore the consequence of our sin. The punishment Verse 5 says, the punishment necessary to obtain peace, including prosperity, for us was upon him. And then it says, and by his stripes we were healed. Isn't that right? By his stripes we were healed. All of that happened on the cross. And then it says, all all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Hebrew lexicon that I have at my house Says, says that this word iniquity has a threefold meaning according to the Hebrew. It means, number one, the sin of iniquity. It also carries the idea of the guilt of iniquity. And thirdly, the consequences of or the punishment for iniquity. Not iniquity. Iniquity here means the sin of iniquity, the guilt of iniquity, and then the consequences of, guilt, of iniquity or the, or the punishment for iniquity. Well, what did, what did it say about him? The Lord has laid on him the guilt of iniquity, the sin of iniquity, and the consequences of iniquity. Jesus bore the consequences of sin. Well, if one of those consequences was poverty and lack, then Jesus bore poverty and lack. Why did he bear it? Why did he bear sin? So that we could go free from sin. Well, so that we could live a righteous life and, and be pleasing to God. Why did Jesus bear uh, the guilt of sin? So that we could be free from the guilt of sin. Why did Jesus bear the, the punishment necessary to obtain that? Why did he bear the, the, the consequences of sin? So that we could be free. He, he bore our sorrow so that we could be free from sorrow. Well, he bore our lack and poverty so that we could be free from that. Amen. 
and to prosper according to God's original plan. Now, let's, uh, we got, let's look at the New Testament. Go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let's see that, that this is actually brought out in the New Testament. Galatians, the third chapter, and verse number 13. It says, Christ, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. When did that happen? For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So on the cross, Christ redeemed us. That word redeemed means that he purchased our freedom from the curse of the law. Well, if you hold your place right there, now let's, before we go and let's, let's read the next verse. He, he, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us. Well, go over to Deuteronomy And when Moses gave the law, go to the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, he identifies both the blessing of Abraham and the curse of the law. In verse 28, he begins with the blessings. Excuse me, in verse number one, chapter 28, he begins with the blessings. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today that the Lord your God will set you a high above all nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country. How many of you live in the country? Got you covered. How many of you live in the city? Got you covered. Amen. Blessed, verse four, shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. So, well, I don't have any cattle. I don't have any herds. I don't have any flocks. Well, you know, and I don't have any. I'm not a gardener. I'm not a farmer. Well, this just means that God will bless you financially or or whatever you do for a living, that God will bless you. Blessed, verse five says, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses. You could say in my bank accounts and in all to which you set your hand and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. He will establish you as a holy people to himself just as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your, uh, of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you the good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and shall not be beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. 
Well, I would say that this includes financial prosperity. And and it's a very powerful picture. There's no uh, question here whether or not the blessing of God includes prosperity. But then he went on to say in verse 15, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all of his commandments which I command you today that all these curses shall come upon you. Remember, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, we're about to read it. Cursed shall you be in this city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be your basket and kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke and all that you set your hand to until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken the Lord. And uh, the Lord will make the plague cling to you as he has consumed, and until he has consumed you from the land which you go to possess. He goes on to describe such devastation, physical devastation, sickness, poverty, uh, destruction of family, just, just destruction of anything you could think of. Well, it says Christ has redeemed us from all of this. Christ redeemed us from uh, among all of these things, but including poverty. Christ redeemed us from poverty. Well, when did he do it? On the cross. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It It was on the cross that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of poverty. Why? So what would happen? So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us in Christ Jesus. So we see that in the Old Testament, it shows that sin is a cons- that poverty is one of the consequences of sin and that Jesus bore the consequences of sin, including poverty. And we see in the New Testament that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, which includes poverty, that the blessing might come upon us, which includes plenty and, and, and abundance. Isn't that right? Now, our covenant of prosperity is a settled fact. Now, before we go further, we have to read this verse. I almost let this slip. Go over, go back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Now, if you haven't heard what I'm about to say, just hold on and judge everything by the word of God and by your heart, by your inward man. Don't listen with traditional ears. Don't allow what you've heard to, to cause you a problem. Judge everything by the word and by the spirit. In, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse number nine, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, most people traditionally have interpreted this verse in a spiritual context, that Jesus was rich spiritually and he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And a lot of times they they liken this to when Jesus was, he was in heaven and he humbled himself and became a man and that was going from from, uh, riches to poverty. And and let's face it, to be a man is is poverty compared to being with God. Isn't that right? And... uh, 
So they say that happened when, in G, when Jesus was uh, incarnate and born into the earth. But if you look at this passage, you'll see that this is a substitutionary verse. This verse talks about the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the, on the cross. Notice the language. That he, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's substitutionary language. Let me show you what I mean. Hold your place and go back to chapter five. Same epistle. Chapter 5, notice verse 21. For he, God, made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, when did that happen? Of course, it happened on the cross. This is, this is substitutionary sacrifice language. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Or he could say it like this. Jesus had righteousness, but he became, though he was righteous, he became sin so that we who were sinful could become the righteousness of God. Say it again. Jesus, who was righteous, became sin so that we, through his sacrifice, who were sinful, Through that sacrifice, we could become righteous. Same kind of language in chapter eight, verse number nine. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, in this case, not righteous, but rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. The other verse said he became sin. But here it says he became poor. For our sakes, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. In, in chapter five, it says, so that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you see that, that, it's, that it's substitutionary language? Amen. So what this verse is talking about is something that happened on the cross. On the cross, it says that though he was rich, on the cross, for your sake, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now, then people say, well, that's still talking spiritually. But again, we we won't go into all the criteria, but we went last week, we went over, I don't know, several different fundamental principles of Bible interpretation. And one thing we pointed out, all, all Bible scholars, commentators, and so forth, people knowledgeable in studying the Bible will agree that you do not spiritualize anything in the Bible unless a natural physical or literal translation is not possible. And we gave an example of that. When Jesus said, if any man does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no part of me. Well, you cannot take that literally because God's, God's not advocating cannibalism. Right. Isn't that right? So you know that cannot be interpreted literally. It has to be spiritually. And if you read further in that passage, it'll, the, the, the people had problems with that. And Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit in their life. The flesh profits nothing. The word that I'm speaking is spirit and life. So even Jesus said, slow down, calm down. I'm talking spiritually. So anytime the Bible, there's a statement made, we must take it literally unless it cannot be taken spiritually. 
No, I, I said that wrong. Did I say that backwards? We must take yacht. We must take it, sorry. We must take it literally unless it cannot be taken spiritually. Well, did I get it wrong again? I'm thinking about something else and I'm saying what I'm saying. We must take it literally. Spiritually. No. No, Bible interpretation says you must take it literally unless you can't take it. That's where I missed it. Somebody else want to do this? How many of you knew what I was trying to say? All right. Bible verses must be taken literally unless they can't be taken literally. Then they, must, then they can be taken spiritually. Well, then you look at the context. There, everything in the eighth and ninth chapter, everything about the chapter is dealing with literal offerings and giving and, and poverty and riches. Poverty is mentioned. Riches are mentioned. It's talking about the poverty of people, how they gave so that other people could prosper and so forth. There's nothing in those two chapters that would make us think that this is a spiritual something. So the context shows that it's talking about natural, physical, or earthly prosperity or earthly poverty. Though he was rich, Jesus was rich in this life. See, that's, and that's part of the problem. People don't see that Jesus was rich when he was here. We have the idea that Jesus was a poor man that he wandered through the life as a vagabond, you know, didn't have anything. You know, didn't, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Well, there's a reason, there's a particular reason in that verse when Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's a particular, if you go back and look at the context, there's a reason why he said that. He had just been uh, rejected in uh, a place where he went, I think it was Samaria, he had, they, they were going to go through there and they rejected him and wouldn't let him into their town. And on the very, in, in that setting, he said, well, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. But in other places, Jesus always had somewhere to lay his head. He stayed in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He stayed with Peter and Andrew. I mean, Jesus was always well provided for. Jesus was not poor. Now, we, we said last week he was rich. He, did he have, uh, uh, you know, three or four houses and a condo, you know, on the beach and, and uh, you know, sacks of silver and gold? No, that wasn't his mission in life. To be rich, according to the Bible, there's no dollar figure attached to, be, to, uh, to riches. There, you can't define being rich with a, with a dollar amount. Being rich in the Bible is having a full supply, having all you need for yourself and plenty left over to be a blessing to somebody else. That's being rich in the Bible. Jesus was rich. Everywhere he went, all of his needs were met. It came time to pay taxes. The fish coughed up the money. I mean, he always had, he could break the bread and feed the multitudes. Everywhere he went, he had plenty. Everybody around him had plenty. He had a treasurer, uh, uh, and, and they often gave to the poor out of his treasury, so he had to have had income coming in. They had so much money in the treasury that Judas, the Bible says, regularly stole from the treasury and nobody knew it. 
You'd have to have quite a bit of money if, when you only have 12 disciples in that company and one of them is pilfering the, the offering plate. You'd have to have enough money for nobody to even know it. They always had plenty. Every time Jesus said, take this money and go buy this for a feast or go do this or that, there was always money there. So the point is Jesus was rich in his earth walk. He had plenty. But on the cross, he became poor for our sakes that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I know I'm, I'm, I'm going over what I went over Sunday night, but some people weren't here, and it is so important. Our covenant of prosperity is a settled fact. Our covenant of prosperity is a settled fact. Our prosperity has been provided in Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn the covenant right of prosperity. It belongs to us. But now here's where the, where the uber grace people get, get twisted up. They say, well, if, if in Christ I've been blessed with prosperity, then there's nothing for me to do to gain prosperity because prosperity is already mine. And so if I try to do something like, like tithe or give offerings and expect God to bless me, then I'm putting myself back under the law. Well, to begin with, giving and receiving in the New Testament is not part of the Old Testament law. The principles of the New Testament are not Old Testament law. And people say, well, you know, if I'm blessed and I have a covenant of blessing, then I don't have to do anything. I have a covenant right to prosper. Well, that's, that's both true and it's not true. Yes, as a Christian, you have the covenant right to prosperity, but the New Testament still says you give and you receive on the basis of what you give. Think about this for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, Eden when God created man, this was before the law. This was before sin. This was before the fall of man. So grace had never even been extended to man. Paul made the statement, if you, if you work, then the reward is a matter of debt and not of grace. He's talking about the works of the law. But in the Garden of Eden, there was no debt. Man didn't have a debt. Before sin came, when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create Adam a debtor. I'm talking spiritually. Adam didn't owe God anything in terms of, of having sinned against him. There was no sin, there was no transgression, so there, there was, so there was no law and neither was there grace as we know it in the New Testament. Isn't that right? Adam and Eve in that perfect condition, God said he placed them in the garden to tend it. If you look up that, that passage in other translations, it'll say he put them there to work the garden. Many translations say it that way, to work it. Others say to cultivate it. So, so working the garden, cultivating the garden, God gave them the garden, but they still had to work it. And that was not law. That was not even grace. That was just their participation in what God gave them. So God gives us prosperity 
And then he expects us to work it. He expects us to cultivate it. And if we don't cultivate it, we will. That's why in the New Testament, we're not under the law, we're under grace. But the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he won't eat. That's not the works of the law. That's cultivating the blessing of God. That's working the blessing of God. You're here in 2 Corinthians. Are you still there? Go back to chapter 9. We pointed this out. Verse 6 says, Give, or he who sows, excuse me, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, that's not a matter of law. That's just a matter of participating in the blessing of God. That's a matter of cultivating, working the blessing of God. You can, let's go on and read the rest of this. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. Now notice, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. He's able to do it, but he does it to the degree that we sow. God is able to make all grace abound. But the only way all grace is going to abound so that we always have an abundance for every good work. The only, God's able to do it, but the only way it happens is when we give generously. If we give sparingly, some grace will abound. I'm talking about the grace that we're talking about here. God is able to make all grace. Well, when you give sparingly, all grace is not going to abound in your giving. If you give generously, then all grace will abound. That's what he's trying to encourage us to do. God's able to make all grace so that you always, having all sufficiency in all things. Well, that doesn't come about by giving stingily, sparingly. That comes about as, as a result of giving generously with an open hand. Isn't that right? Now notice verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply the seeds you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God will give us seed to sow and bread for food. Jesus said it like this in, in the book of Matthew. He said, consider the birds. They don't, they don't toil, they don't sow. And, and he said, I provide for them. He said, you look at the flowers of the field, which today flourish and they're beautiful and tomorrow we, we cut them down and burn them. He said even Solomon in all of his splendor was not arrayed like, the, like the, the flowers of the field. He said if God cares for the flowers and the birds will he not even more take care of you? Amen. Now listen, listen. He said do not take any thought. What will we wear? What will we eat? We could include what, all of the basic necessities of life. Where are we going to live? How are we going to you know, have transportation? All of the needs. He said, do not worry about those things for your father knows you need all of those things. 
Seek him first and the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That comes about as a result of God's grace. God will supply your need. But here's how he does it. He does it in two stages. He gives you seed to sow and bread to eat. I called it Sunday night last week, God's seed and feed program. He will give you seed to sow and bread to eat. That's that's the covenant. You have a right to claim that. Just because you're a child of God, you have a right to claim a good job, a good income, increases, pay raises, bonuses, advancements. You have a right. That's your covenant right without doing anything. Just because you're a child of God, you have a right. But God, And then God has promised to give you seed to sow and bread to eat. If you don't sow the seed, in other words, the, the, the part that God gives you to share, if you consume that upon yourself and make it feed instead of seed, you eat all of the seed, basically. You, he says, I'll give you seed to sow. Let's look at it again. And bread for food. And he will supply and multiply the seed you have sown. Notice he doesn't multiply the feed that you eat. He doesn't multiply what you, he does, he can't multiply what you consume on yourself. It's what you sow. Let me say it it again. Because we are redeemed from the curse, because we have a covenant of prosperity, it is our covenant right to claim our basic needs met. But we know that we still have to act in faith for he who doesn't work will not eat. So God provides it by providing opportunities for employment. It's the will of God. But then as that that comes to you, it comes in the form of seed to sow and bread to eat. God wants you to sow the seed so that he can take that and multiply it back to you over and over and over. And and you begin to rise out of the the level of, of dependency and lack that's in your life. You'll begin to rise out of that to the degree you sow seed. Remembering that if you sow sparingly, you'll rise out of that very slowly. If if you if you sow sparingly enough, you won't rise out of it at all. You'll just stay where you are. But if you will add to what you sow, if you begin to sow generously, you will begin to come out be up and beyond the basic needs of life. And you will begin to ascend higher and higher. You will begin to prosper. You will continue prospering until you become very prosperous. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.